been in a series that we're finishing up today called The Biblical Making of Womanhood. And so if you're just here for the first time and you need to get caught up, you can go watch these on YouTube or Facebook. You can listen to them on Spotify or on uh, Apple Podcasts as well. You can go to our website, anchoredhope.church, even just to stay in touch with what's going on in the life of the church. But uh, we've been talking about what the Bible says about womanhood. And the thing is, is that the biblical definition of womanhood, we've been told a lot of different things. And so what we did was we started this series, we, just, we started with Jesus, Right? That's the most important thing we could do. Start with Jesus. Look at what Jesus said about women and where women belong and how Jesus interacted with women. We saw that Jesus had women disciples. Jesus, you know, was financed by women. Uh, Jesus traveled with women. Jesus stood up for women. And so we see that, you know, Jesus, he he empowered and he included and he stood up for uh, the rights of women. And so, you know, really that set the tone for this entire series because everything that we talked about past that, we looked through the lens of Jesus. It's so important that we do that. And we're going to talk about that today too. You know, it's important that anything that we talk about, we put our Jesus glasses on and we look at it the way that Jesus would have looked at it. So then we talked about Genesis, right? Because patriarchy, which is the belief that, you know, men are above women, uh, that, that women should submit to men. It starts even with Genesis, with Adam and Eve. And so we talked about that and kind of broke that down and looked at, and we discovered that in the garden, when, when God created man and woman, he created them both in his image. And that when God was in, when we were in the garden, we were, we were equals, right? It was, it was men and women and God, and then creation was below that. And what messed it all up was the fall. When the fall it shuffled everything around, all of a sudden creation was above man, man was above woman. But that doesn't mean that's the way it's supposed to be. It doesn't mean it's the way that heaven's going to be. Heaven's going to be like the garden, the way God intended it. When God made it and he said it was good, that's the way, that's what we're trying to get back to. So why wouldn't we live that way now if at all possible, with God's help. And then we got into Paul. Last week we talked about Paul, right? And we talked about what Paul says, because there's several places in the Bible where, you know, we see a letter that was written in, in the New Testament where, you know, there are these directions given about what women should do in the church. And there's verses there, there about women should be silent and women shouldn't do this and women shouldn't do that. And so we talked about that. And we broke it down. We, we understood that the context of that time, that it was Roman law for these things to happen. And so Paul says a lot of different stuff, but a lot of it is citing what people knew about the times. And he even says, he says men and women, he says brothers and sisters. To all of his letters, he writes women and men. And he tells them to prophesy. He tells them to preach. He tells them to do these things. So clearly, we're we're, we're misunderstanding a bit of the context here. We're misunderstanding what's there. We've got to look at the puzzle pieces, but not just one puzzle piece. We've got to collect it all together. And when we look at the big picture, we see that Paul, just like Jesus, empowered, included, and stood up for women. Now, that's where we are in the series, and today's the last day. So you can stop sending me your emails. We'll be at Christmas here pretty soon, you know, and I'll just be talking about Mary and Joseph and candy canes and sweet things, and you'll all be happy again, okay? So, yeah, amen. And so... Today we're going to finish up this series, and, and so far, so far, you may have been with me, okay? I haven't, had a, I haven't had a lot of kickback or anything like that, right? So far, you're like, man, pastor, I'm with you. I'm good, you know? I mean, you know, yep, Jesus loved girls, and so do I, and Paul... Paul, I I believe you, man. We should have those women pastors, and we should let those ladies teach in the back. I'm all good with that pastor. But then we also know that Paul also talked about marriage. And for some of you, that's where you're like, but. Some of y'all, y'all got a really big butt. Turn to your neighbor and go, do you have a big butt? Actually, don't do that. Never mind. 
may go wrong. But some of you guys, you have a big butt. And the thing that I hear a lot as a pastor, one thing I've heard a term is, is this term right here. What is the definition of a, a biblical marriage? What's the definition of a, a biblical marriage? And I hate that question. I hate that word. When you hear me preach or hear me talk, I don't ever say what the Bible says because I don't like that term either. But I, I don't like this. This is my second least favorite term, biblical marriage. Because somebody came up to me and they're like, what's the definition of a biblical marriage? I said, well, it depends on what part of the Bible you read. Because if you want a biblical marriage and you want to look at the Old Testament, if you want to look at how a Jewish marriage was arranged, well then, shoot. I mean, basically women are property. And mixed marriage is not a thing. And women definitely submit to, to men because they're basic, basically property, right? Or if you looked at you know, the New Testament and looked at a Gentile definition, what a biblical definition of a marriage is according to the Gentiles or according to the New Testament Christians, it's completely different. So that's the thing. The term biblical marriage, it, there is no one place to look. Okay? There is no one verse or one passage that tells us what a biblical marriage looks like. Because the thing is, is there, there is no cookie cutter for this. But there is a cookie cutter for Christians. And looking at the cookie cutter of what it means to be a Christian helps us understand God's hopes for us in marriage. And so that's what we're going to look at today, and we're going to get to Paul because people love looking at Paul because he is a New Testament writer, and he is post-crucifixion and resurrection, and so, you know, what Paul says has a lot of weight, but again, I believe that we only focus on one puzzle piece, and we've got to connect all the puzzle pieces and look at the bigger picture of what Paul was actually trying to say. But before we can get to Paul, again, we need to go back to Jesus. Because everything Paul says, Paul doesn't make up. Paul says through the filter of Jesus. So if we go back to the night where Jesus, right before he was taken and he was crucified, the night before he was, he was killed and, and you know, crucified for our sins, he gathered all of his disciples together. And this is what he says to them. John, he records it for us. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. A new command I give you, love one another. Now, here's the thing. This actually wasn't a new command. This was part of the Old Testament. You know, the Old Testament, Old Covenant, the, the laws that were given to Moses, and Moses gave, there were 613-ish of them. And of those 613, one of them was love one another, okay? But the thing is, and you know this today, this, this fits our culture and our context, love is like kind of in the eye of the beholder, Right? I mean, with your definition of love, if we were like, love is, and you came up with your own definition, they'd all be a little bit different, right? And that's kind of the way it was in the Old Testament. What is love? I don't know. What is love? You know, and they made that song up right there. It was written by Moses and his crew, right? I, I don't know what love is, but Jesus, he does something amazing. He takes these 613 commands and goes, I'm going to give you a new one that is all-encompassing. You're not going to need the 613 because this new one is the one. This is the most important thing you can do. I want you to love one another. But then he defined that love, he sharpened that love, and he gave us a undeserved disputable definition of what Christian love is. He says this, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. He says, I don't want you to love each other through your own definition of love, through your own interpretation of love. I want you to love one another. How? The way I have loved you. And everybody in that room would have understood that. Everybody in that room, Jesus would have turned to Peter and goes, Peter, 
You remember how you were a fisherman? How you were stupid? How you're just a dumb fisherman. And you know what? I took you. And remember how many times you messed up? And remember how many times you failed? And how many times you had said you had faith and you actually didn't? And how many times I kept picking you up and you kept falling and I kept picking you up and you kept falling and I kept picking you up? And remember how once that happened, I never once brought it up again. I never rubbed it in your face. I never called you names or anything. You remember that, Peter? Yes, I do, Lord. That's how I want you to love other people. Matthew, remember when you were a tax collector? You remember when you were taking advantage of people and you were stealing people and you were a cruel villain of this culture and this world? Yes, I do, Lord. And you remember how I still invited you to follow me and I took you in and I treated you like one of my own and I never brought up your past, did I? No, you didn't, Lord. That's how I want you to love other people. He could have gone around that entire room and everybody would have understood the way that Christ loved me is how I am supposed to love everyone else. But that wasn't good enough. You know why it wasn't good enough? Because even though they had one-on-one personal experiences with Jesus Christ, there was a whole rest of the world who hadn't yet and who didn't understand. And so Jesus had to make a worldwide public final act so that everybody absolutely understood what Jesus' brand of love looked like. And you know what he did? He allowed himself to be taken he was put on trial. He could have gotten out of it if he, if he wanted to, but he didn't. And he died for you and I. He died for us. He died for our sins. He, he, he allowed himself to be crucified and whipped and torn to shreds. He allowed his body to be broken and his blood to be shed for you and for I as his final, most impressive act of love. The best love that anybody could ever imagine. The kind of love that says, I'm going to lay down my life even though I am blameless, even though I didn't do anything wrong. I'm going to take the bullet for you and I'm going to die for you. And he did that for every single one of us. And so Jesus, that that was his command to us. He goes, I want you to love one another. How do I want you to love one another? I want you to love one another the way I loved you. I want you to literally lay your life down for one another. So, Good way to remember this is when you're not sure what to say or do, love like God through Christ loved you. Come on, that was good, right? It's not really a joke. I mean, it's just a good way to remember it, right? When you're not sure what to say or do, love like God through Christ loved you. This is what makes us Christians. But probably when Jesus gave this command, Somebody in the back, probably like Nathaniel or somebody, somebody in the back probably raised up their hand and said this, uh, but Jesus, n- not them girls, right? Not, not them girls, just the guys, right? We're just supposed to love one another, but not them girls, right? Because we talked about this last week, right? Historical context, what was going on? Women were property. Women couldn't make financial transactions. They couldn't own anything. They had to submit to whatever man was in their life, whether it be their husband or their brother or their dad. Women were viewed as property. And men had no obligation to women. They didn't have an obligation to their wife. Everything was about them. This was as as patriarch as it could possibly get. Everything was about them. And so probably somebody asked this question, but what about them girls? What do we do about them girls? Are you saying we're supposed to love them girls? And you know what? This was probably a theological question that was, that was probably discussed in every small group for the next 30 years. Okay? All of them small groups got together, and they're like, you guys remember what Jesus told us to do before he died? We're supposed to love one another. We're supposed to love one another the way that he loved us. And somebody in the back was like, yeah, 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 Joe, I get that. I get that. Uh, but, uh, but what about my wife? 
Because she, she's really been getting on my nerves, you know. And she's been wanting to start a house church by herself. And I keep telling her, girl, get in your lane. You know, go make me a sandwich. What do you think you're doing? You're not going to be able to do that, you know. So I'm just wondering, like, did like, when he was talking to all them guys in the room, did he really mean girls? Because there were no girls there. He didn't wash any girls' feet. I'm just wondering, you know. And they probably debated this for like 30 years in every small group that they ever had, right? So then it gets to the point where Paul becomes a Christian. Paul starts planting all these churches. And again, everybody's having the same small group discussion. How about them girls? What are we supposed to do about them girls? And so Paul finally was like, you know what? We're going to talk about them girls. Let me give you guys some directions about what to do with them girls. Let me tell you what to do, what a biblical marriage looks like, or more, more accurately, what a Christ-like marriage looks like. So he writes this letter to Ephesus, right? He writes this letter to Ephesians, and he goes, all right, guys, you want to know what to, how, what to do with them girls? Here's what you do with them girls. And this is what he tells them. He says, wives. Submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Okay, so pretty black and white. I'm going to pray, and we're all going to go to Applebee's, all right? We're going to beat the Baptist, all right? Let everybody bow your head with me real quick. We're all done, all right? No, we're not done yet. Are you kidding me, right? I saw you, Stuart. You bowed your head for a minute. Come on, you know me better than that. I'm preaching at least 45 minutes, you know what I mean? So, but there it is, black and white, right? Wives, submit yourself to your own husbands as you do the Lord. Now, here's what's really, really interesting about this verse, okay? If you really wanted to get into it, if you wanted to go back and, and translate everything, bless you, um, then you know what? If you wanted to go back, you know that all of our English Bibles, that they were translated from Greek. So let's say you were really smart, and you're like, I don't trust this pastor guy. I need to do my own investigation on this. And so you went back and you found the oldest Greek documents that we had to see what the Bible actually said because maybe somebody didn't translate something right. So you go and you find the oldest Greek documents. And if you translated the Greek word for word into English, do you know what it would actually say? This is what it actually would say. Wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. That's all that's there. What's missing? There's no verb. Where's that word submit? It's not there. In the Greek, there is no Greek word that means submit. And now all of you guys are questioning even being a Christian, right? You're like, wait a minute. I knew it. See, parts of these Bibles are just made up. I'm telling you what, right? It's not there. So then why is it there in our English, in our English Bible? Is it somebody's pranking us? Is somebody wrong? Was there some man that was like, I think what he meant was, and he just wrote it in there, you know, because his wife was being a big pain, and he's like, there needs to be a submit there. I'll tell you that much, right? So maybe he just wrote it in it. Why is it? Well, here's what you have to understand. You have to understand how Greeks wrote. Greeks wrote not like how we write, right? People, they would have heard this, and we look at that, and we're kind of confused. But if people would have heard that in Paul, when they actually read Paul's letter, they wouldn't have said, they would have said, duh, not huh, okay? Because they understood what Paul was actually saying. See, when you write in Greek, what you do is you start with a verb, and then you let it go, and then in the next sentence, the verb is inferred, but it's not included. Does that make sense? So the verb is written, do this, verb, then in the next sentence, it's not included, but it's inferred. That's how Greeks wrote. So Greek, it's weird. You kind of have to like read it backwards, right? That's why it's so important that you look at what is in the verse before and the verse after whenever you're, you're reading the Bible, okay? You can't just read a verse. You can't just do your, 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 your Bible app verse of the day. You need to explore. You need to look. You need to search. So the most important question then is, 
what is in the verse before. And it's very, very interesting. And the verse before, Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. But here's what's interesting. Is he talking to women or is he talking to everybody? He's talking to everybody. He's saying he's, he has a wide audience. And, again, he's not even talking to married people yet. Okay? Keep that in mind. This is not a marriage verse yet. This is just the beginning. 520, Ephesians 5.21, he says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. All of you. All of you who call yourself Christians. We are all called. Again, everything he's writing, he's not making things up. He's not giving tips. He's not doctor filling anything. Everything he writes, he's putting through the filter that, of Jesus' life and Jesus' commands. And he's taking it and he's straining it through the filter of Jesus and out comes the practicality of it. So he's saying, all of you, we were all told by Jesus to love one another the same way that he loved us. Everybody's like, well, what does it look like? He says, well, here's what it looks like. In the same way that Jesus submitted himself, he laid down his life for us, he washed our feet. Well, guess what we're supposed to do? We're supposed to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So what is he talking about? He's talking about this, mutual submission. He says, submit to one another. Christians, submit to one another. Men, women, submit to one another. This is an everybody thing. Submit to one another. And so he says, you all should submit to one another. And then he goes, and what does that look like in marriage? He says, well, wives, submit to your husbands. Right? Again, it's not included, but it is inferred. Wives, submit to your husbands. And again, at this point, everybody, nobody would have been bothered. No emails were written yet. Okay? He says, guys, we should, we should all be submitting to one another. Okay, 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 I'm with you, Pastor Man, so far. All right, let's see what this looks like, though. Well, word's still out, word's still out. Okay. And then he's like, wives, here's what it looks like for you, wives. Submit yourself to your husband. Everybody goes, duh. You know, honey, you've been doing that very good. You know, but listen to the preacher, man. He told you what I've been telling you for years. You need to submit to me, okay? And then he says this. And then he says, he gets to the husbands. For the husband is the head of the wife. And again, all the men go, amen, brother, amen, that's right. We are the head of the wife. I love, I love this church. This, kind of, this is my pastor, kind of my pastor, right? Told my wife she needs to submit to me. Said I'm the head of the table. I'm the head of my wife. I'm the main man. That's right. That's good. That's good. That's good. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Can't wait to go to Applebee's after this. Okay? But then, okay, he swaps everything around. He's such a good speaker. He's so smart. Because what he does, he does what every good speaker does. He finds common ground. He goes, you know, this is how it's supposed to be, right? And everybody goes, yeah, 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 yeah. And then he flips it on its head. Because this is what he says next. He says, for the husband is the head of the wife. As Christ is the head of the church. Wow. Let's do some word association. Okay, you guys want to play a game? Let's play a game in the middle of church. Okay, y'all like to shout things out while I'm in the middle of my presentation. I'll give you a chance to do it. Of course, Mike Lair is the first one to go, yeah, finally. Uh, in the same way that Christ is the head of the church. Let, let's, let's do a word association game. When I say the word Jesus, what words come to mind? Go ahead, yell them out. Love, Christ, what else? Sacrifice. What would you say? Oh, superstar, okay. <laughs> That's... Um, Worldly belief. That's a show. Not really biblical. Anyway, we'll do a series on that. Don't worry. G give me two more. Give me two more words. Creator. 
Jesus didn't create, God did, but you're, you're close, okay? But talking about Jesus specifically, it's important, right? What about grace, mercy, sacrifice? Nobody said boss, did they? It's funny. Nobody said boss. I mean, Christy said superstar, which is close, but this doesn't work. Nobody said boss. Nobody even said leader. Nobody said head, right? See, it's interesting. See, everybody, every, ma- every male who heard this, their mouths would have dropped. Because he starts out and he says, for the husband is the head of the table. Go back, go back, I want to read it. For the husband is the head of the, t- head of the wife. Yeah, that's right. But he's the head of the wife in the same way that Christ is the head of the church. Oh, wait, but wait a minute. Jesus was like the head of the church in how he sacrificed. Like, he was like the lead sacrificer. He was like the, the guy who, you know, Paul even says, you know, his body. Remember what he did with his body? Well, he laid it down. And that's kind of the role of the husband in the marriage. He doesn't say, if you wanted to look at it like this, go ahead and go to that list. He's not saying that, that husbands are the head boss, is he? He's saying, husbands, you're the head of your, you're the head of your wife. In the same way, only in terms and the way that Christ was the head of the church. So what he's saying is, is guys, if, if you're the head of anything, if you're the head of this department in your family, if you're supposed to be the best at in your family, well, then you're the head servant. Then you're the head sacrificer. Then, then, then you're the head grace giver. Then you're the head lover. Then, then you're the head peacemaker. Then you are the head patience haver. I don't know if haver's a word, but whatever. <laughs> you are the lead patience haver. That is the way in which you are the head of the household. Yeah, you, you're the head. And all the men go, yeah, yeah, yeah. It means I call the shots. No, doesn't mean you call the shots. It means you're the head the way Jesus was the head. You're this. Head servant, head sacrificer, head patience maker, head lover, head, head patience haver. And then all the men's mouths are, are, are on the floor. And all the women are going, oh, shoot. I like this preacher too now, right? Okay, okay, okay. And Paul, here's what's so amazing. Paul gives, Paul gives one verse to the women. One verse that they were already doing. Women, he's like, women, y'all are already doing this. Let me talk to your husband for a sec, all right? And then he, t- he keeps going through the men. He gives the women one little thing, and he keeps rolling through the guys. And this is what he says next. He goes, husbands, love your wives. Which, again, we look at today, and we don't even blink. But back then, their mouths were already on the floor. Then they would have passed over. Because men had no obligation to women. They had no obligation to love or care about. Women were viewed as property. And so Paul, it's the most anti-patriarch thing anybody had ever said at that time. Paul looks at all the men and goes, you need to love your wife. And they're going, who in the world do you think you are? What do you mean, love my wife? I bought her with my dad's sheep. Are you out of your mind? Love her? You're crazy. And then he goes even further. He goes, how do I want you to love her? Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Again, the same message he had already just given. How, but how do we want you? How are we supposed to love our wives? Like give them some extra like coins to spend during the week? No, I want you to love her in the way that Christ loved the church. You know how he died for them? That's what you want me to do? You want me to die for my wife? Are you insane? 
And then Paul, again, one verse for women, let's roll through the men. And he goes on. He says this next. He goes, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Now, again, historical context. You may or may not know this. Women were viewed as disfigured men. Okay? Men loved a man's body. Okay? For, for a traditional world, there was a lot of homo stuff that was going on back then, okay? They looked at a girl's body and went, ick, okay? They looked at a god's body, and they're like, yeah, that's how it's supposed to look, right there, right? So that's why they always carved, like, big old chiseled naked men everywhere, right, and Greek stuff. That's why you never see, like, statues of, like, naked women until later, because they just loved it. Man, man, you know, they're going around, like, slapping each other's butts. So, like, Bo, you've been doing squats, man. That thing's getting tight. I like that. Man, my wife, this ugly thing over here, oh, geez, and my property over here, you know. But, man, nice butt, Bo. I really like that thing. By the way, Bo is getting a nice butt, y'all. If you look at it today before you leave church, he's been working. He's been working. He's been doing that CrossFit. He's getting fit, y'all. Anyway, um, where was I talking about? Oh, so they hated, they hated women's bodies. They thought women's bodies were disgusting. So he, Paul, he's telling them, love them like your own bodies. You know how much you love a man's body? You know how much you love your own body? You know how much you check yourself out and you think of yourself in so much regard? You hold a man's body up in such high esteem? That's how I want you to treat women. I want you to look at a woman's body like that. I want you to treat her not as a disfigurement, not as something that didn't bake long enough in the oven. I want you to love her and look at her and go, that's the way God created her, and I love her for it. That's what he's telling these men to do. And then he says something so powerful. This is what he says. He says, the man that loves his wife loves himself. He goes, you want to do what's best for you? Well, and here's what's best for you. What's best for you is if you love her. Because when you were married, you didn't buy property. You became one. You became a a unit. You came together. You didn't take them. It's not the ball and chain. You, you, you You are one together. You know, if, if you think about it, it makes so much sense because, I mean, take your guys' vows, right? If you're, if you're married, you probably had vows. And if you had traditional vows, you remember how it goes, right? They told you, know, you took each other by the hand and you were standing there in front of the pastor or the priest or, 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 or your Uncle Bill, I don't know, whoever it was. And you were like, I, I, Michael, take you to be my wife, to have and to hold for better or worse, for richer, for poorer, for sickness and in health, right? And you both said that. You both said the same thing. If you believe in patriarchy, if you believe that the male is above the female, well, then you need to redo your wedding vows, okay? You need to go up. You, need, we'll come, you come up here to church. We'll redo your wedding vows. I'll have Pastor Ashley do it because I ain't doing it. But we'll have Pastor Ashley do it. And, you know, you guys can come and you can take each other by the hand and you can say, I, Michael, take you to be my wife. To have and to hold, but you need to hold me more than I hold you, okay? And for richer, for poor, but I'm going to be making the financial decisions around here. And when I want to buy a new truck, I'm going to buy a new truck, okay? And, and for richer and for, you know, for poor and, and sickness and in health, but my, but my health is more important than your health, okay? Because I'm the man in the relationship. And for better or worse, but my worse is more important than your worse. And my better will always be more better than your better, okay? So 
I do. I do. I do, right? That's, then that's what you need to go back and say because here's the thing. You're not talking about mutual submission when you talk about the man being above the wife. And there is nowhere that you can tell me where Paul says that, that, that a, a husband is above a wife in any term other than he should be like Christ and he should be the head submitter. He should be the one that gives up more than the wife. If anything, your wife should get more than you do because you should be the best submitter than anybody. Here's what, ha- here's what happy couples know. You know what happy couples know? Happy couples, they say, I'm here for you. And you're here for me. This is what happy couples know. We're, we're mutually submitting to one another. But here's the beauty of it as a Christian. You want to know what a Christian marriage looks like? This is what a Christian marriage looks like. A Christian would say this. I'm here for you and you're here for me. But I'm not here for you because you're here for me. I'm here for you because God was there for me. That'll preach. That will preach. I'm not here for you because you've earned it. You don't deserve it. It's because God was here for me. Because God so loved me. That's why I love you. And married couples, married couples, isn't that what we fight about so often? But I did this for you and I do this for you and you don't do it for me. And I understand that. But if you want to survive... You don't do for them because they did for you. Because here's what you do. All you do is, in, is you get into a debt-debtor relationship. I owe you. You owe me. I gave you. Now give it up to me. Right? That's the thing. Right? You go back and forth. But that's not why we do it. I'm not here for you because you're here for me. We're, I'm here for you and you're here for me because we're both doing it for the right reasons. We're doing it because God was there for us. And we're trying to measure up to not how you give it up to me. We're trying to measure up to how God gave it up for us. Here is the best marriage advice you will ever get, okay? People, young people, okay, college-age people, people who are engaged, this is the best marriage advice you'll ever get. And, and, and it's free 99, but you could always give a donation at anchoredhope.church forward slash give, okay? This is the best marriage advice. If I had to write a book, it'd just be one page, it'd say this, and the next page would just be a, a picture of my face like this, okay? Are you ready for this? It's this. You do not get married to be taken care of. You get married to take care of someone. You do not get married to be taken care of. That's not why you get married. You get married to take care of someone. When I, when I sit in, in premarital counseling with couples, couples that want me to do their wedding, I always ask them the same question. You probably have somebody, who, family or something like that. You ask them, well, why do you want to get married? Why do you want to get married? And nine times out of ten, This is what you'll hear somebody say. They make me happy. And let me tell you something. If that is your answer to why you got married or why you're thinking about getting married, you will be disappointed. You have about a 50-50 shot. This is why our marriage rate between Christians and non-Christians and everybody in a 50-50 chance of marriages surviving is because most people get in the marriage because somebody makes them happy. And I guarantee you, if you get into a relationship with somebody because they make you happy, there will be a day where they do not make you happy. The best thing you could say, the best answer you could give, if you can give this answer, then you definitely should get married. It's this, is I want to make them happy. See, as Christians, we're all called to love one another in the way that Christ has loved us. We're all called to submit ourselves to one another. 
And then what happens is in marriage is you find somebody that just makes it so doggone easy. Somebody that you just want to submit to. Somebody who you want to love. Somebody that you just look at and you just go, I, I want to br- make their future hopes and dreams a reality. I, I submit to everybody. I give my life away. But for them, I just want to take it so much further than that. I want such an intimacy with them. I want to devote almost my life to just to making them happy. That's why you get married. That's a healthy marriage. And when two people do that, when both people get into a marriage not to be made happy, but to give happy, well, you know what I call that. I call that a submission competition. And that is the most, that's the best marriage that anybody could be in. Yeah, oh, close, Mike. That's why you don't jump ahead, because you're wrong, okay? So that's why you can't be just yelling out answers, because sometimes you're wrong. It's not a biblical marriage. Do you know what it is? It's a Christ-centered marriage is what it is. It's a Christ-centered marriage. It's a submission competition. It's what Jesus called us to do. Now, to wrap up this series, we're going to have real talk, okay? I'm going to get out the serious tool. Here's why, here's why this is so much better, okay? Here's why this is so good for females and for males. Because you're probably listening to this and you're like, ah... I don't know. It makes sense. I get all the, you know, evidence that you've shown or anything, but let me tell you why this is so, so good. And here's the thing. There will be some women, what I'm about to say, there will be some women who completely resonate with this, and you're going to hear them say, amen. Ladies, I just gave you your clue, okay? Um, there will some, be some, some women in this room, you will not understand what I'm talking about, and that is completely okay, all right? You, but some of you, you will, you will totally identify with this, and that's this, Okay? The biblical making of womanhood, there are people, there are people who, who, who listen to just wives submit to their husbands, and they were taught patriarchy. They were taught the male is the head of the household, not in being the lead servant, not being like Christ, but in like he gets to make the decisions, he's the head of the household, he's the boss, okay? And a woman, what's, what's the woman's role? Well, the woman's role is, is to be that Proverbs 31 woman, Okay? Proverbs 31, you may not know what that is, but there's a whole ministry dedicated to it, okay? Uh, yeah, Proverbs 31 woman, right? I mean, there's conferences about it, right? It's the woman, I'll give you the, the cliff notes. It's the woman that wakes up early and makes the bread and cleans the sheets and, pat, and sews and, yeah, and, and puts everybody to bed, right? And kisses the foreheads and makes the stew and, and does all the things, right? And here's the thing. In our culture, that has crossed over, right? Like sometimes when we talk about a woman's place, this is where we put it. And if a woman gets out of that place, we go, oh, well, we know who wears the pants in that family because the pants became a male thing all of a sudden, even though you're all wearing pants today, thank God, right? But like that's how it was. It's like the, the biblical definition of womanhood and what a woman does, the biblical definition of what a woman is, we, we've thought for so long is that Proverbs 31 woman, right? The woman who takes care of the kids and gets married and has babies and, and loves them to death, all right? But here's the thing. Some of you women in this room, you have heard that definition. You have heard all of these duties that you're supposed to carry out. And inside, internally, in your heart, it doesn't feel like that's you, You've gone, I'm a woman, yes, and I love being a woman, but I want to be the boss. 
I love being a woman, but I want to be invited to the table, and I want to have a voice. I love being a woman. I love my kids. But after I had kids, I couldn't wait to go back to work. Those eight weeks couldn't be done soon enough. And I want to have a career, and I want to be successful, and I want you, if there's a couch to be moved, I want you to ask me to help you move the couch. And I want to lift the things, and I don't like to cook, and I don't like to clean. So true, amen, right? Some of you women have felt that. And you know what? You've been given this biblical definition of womanhood as if it's Proverbs 31, and you have felt like you don't belong. And you have felt like you are going against God's will, and you have felt like there's something between you and God, and you have felt less than, and you have felt guilty. I feel guilty that I don't always like being with my kids. I like going to work. I feel guilty that I want to be heard. I feel guilty that I want to be involved. I feel, am I not supposed to? Because by this definition of Proverbs 31, I'm not supposed to want to these things, but I do want these things. So am I messed up? And the answer is no. The answer is, is that the Proverbs 31 woman is a type of woman, but it is not the definition of a woman. It is not the biblical cookie cutter because there is none. If, here's the thing. If you want to be the Proverbs 31 woman, if you feel like God has called you to be the Proverbs 31 woman, if you feel like, man, God has laid on my heart, all I want to do is get married and have kids and love the heck out of them, and I want to do these things, and I want that to be my life. If that's what God's put on your heart, then do it. Then good. Then be that. Then be that Proverbs 31 woman. But if you're the woman sitting here today or listening online that like, I want to have a career and I want to lift the things and I don't want to cook and clean and I want to be in business and I want to move things and I want to be heard and I want to create and I want to be an artist and I want to be the boss, then you know what? God is proud of that too. If God has called you to do that, then do it to the best of your ability. If God has called you to be a mother and a wife and a stay-at-home or, 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 or to, to homeschool your kids, then by God, do it to the best of your ability. Because there is no biblical definition for what a woman should be. All that is important is Christ's definition. And Christ's definition of a good woman is someone who loves others the way that Christ has loved them. Period. How is God calling you to love other people? Well, God's calling me to love my, my husband and my kids and, and to take care of them and to homeschool them and to take care of their needs. Then, by God, do it to the best of your ability. Well, I feel like God is wanting to use me and is calling me to love others by being in the business world and by being a leader and by being a boss and I want to create. Then do it to the best of your ability. You're both okay. That's what I'm telling you. You're both blessed. You're both okay. You're both being used by God. God has laid a calling in your life. Nobody has to feel guilty. and Nobody has to feel bad. Now, dudes in the room. I ain't done with you yet. All right? All right. Buckle up. All right? Don't, don't bend over, Mike. <laughs> Shouting some weird. Give him his medication when you go home. Bend over. No, don't bend over. Lord. Whew. I'm embarrassed now. I'm going to button up my shirt. Whew. 
Here's the thing. Here's why this is so much better for men, okay? Because you know this. Again, the biblical definition for men for a long time has been, men, you need to be the leader. Men, you need to be the guy. You need to be the head of the table. You need to be the boss. But can we all for a minute, men admit for a minute, that we've never felt worthy of that? Can we offer a minute, men? We know we've been told you need to be the head of this household. You need to be the leader. You need to be the man. You need to man up. But yet there have been so many times we have felt like we couldn't. There have been so many times where we have felt like we just didn't have it in us, where we needed help, where we have felt all the pressure of everybody asking us what we should do, and we have felt inept. Can we all admit that there have been so many times where our emotions have been so high, but we've been told to man up, and so we have stuffed our emotions down, we've put them in the closet, and we have not dealt with them or processed them, we have not allowed ourselves to grieve, because we felt this internal pressure that we needed to be the man, and we needed to be put together, because we needed to be able to hold everybody up? And have we ever really been able to hold everybody up? No. And here's why this is so much freeing for men. It's freeing for men because what I'm telling you is, is that your role in the head of the household is to not hold everybody up. You do not need to be strong enough emotionally, physically, or mentally. You're not expected to be the anchor of this family. Christ is. And your definition, the biblical definition of a Christian man, Christ's definition of a good man is someone who loves others the way that Christ has loved them. And the only thing you're called to be in your family is the head servant, the head peacemaker, the head patience haver. That is who you're supposed to be, nothing else. And man, I don't know about you, but as a man, that makes me feel so free. Because I understand I'm allowed to be who God created me to be. And there is not a cookie cutter for who I'm supposed to be. I don't have to have it all together. I don't have to call the shots. I don't have to be the one in charge. Christ gave me a helpmate. And I am only called to submit my life to her. And she is called to submit herself to me. And together as a team, we build the life of our hopes and dreams. And we lead our children, and we parent our children, and we help our kids. And we, 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 we go through all the stuff that, that, that gets thrown at us in life. But, but it's not all on me. And thank God, because I screw it up a lot. See, guys, doesn't that take the pressure off? Doesn't that take the pressure off to know that all you need to be is somebody who loves others the way that Christ has loved you? See, this is, this is my final statement on all this. It's this. There is no call, no blessing, no opportunity reserved for a specific gender. We were all, all men and women called in the image of God. And we are all called to love the way that Christ first loved us. That's the point, guys. That's my point. Everything else in between, everything else in between, everything other than that, that's between you and God. If God called you, if God called you in your marriage, if you're like, well, but one of us is the extrovert and one of us is the introvert. So I I let him call the shots or I let her call the shots. That's fine. If that's how it works in your marriage, then yeah, you were created for each other for a reason. Then live it out. 
I'm not telling you you have to both take turns calling the shot so it's all equal. That's not what we're talking about, okay? We're talking about being who God called you to be. But what we're talking about is not thinking that you have to fit a mold because there's some kind of cookie cutter for men and cookie cutter for girls. We're saying that you, the most important thing that you need to check yourself on is if you're loving others the way that Christ loved you. How that looks in your marriage, that's between you and your spouse. In my marriage, man, there's certain things that Kate is good at, certain things that I'm good at. And you know what? We take turns. She takes care of the finances. I take care of this. I cook dinner every day. You know, we, we, we share this. We share that. And, and we're, we're a team. But there's no cookie cutter that we're trying to live by. We've prayed about it. And we've discussed it. And we've sought help. And we've found what works for us. And what works for us may not work for you. Some of you may go, hey, man, it works for us. Like, he works, I stay at home with the kids, and and this is what works for us. Fantastic. Then live your best life and love the way that Christ has loved you. Other people, like the Hellmans are a great example. Rebecca works. Dustin, a male, he stays home with his kids, and he homeschools his kids. And the man loves cooking. Trust me, I've tasted his food. It's fantastic. Okay? That's what works for them. Is Dustin any less of a man? Is Rebecca any less of a woman? Absolutely not. When I redid my floors, I invited Rebecca. I asked Dustin if he'd make some chicken. All right? (laughs) That's okay. They were created for one another. They're such a happy, blessed couple with two fantastic kids. They were created that way. Is there some kind of gender role, biblical gender role that they're missing? No. See, that's the thing. There's no mold here, guys. The only mold that any of us need to fit as Christians is that we love God or that we love others in the same way that Christ first loved us. And as a woman, for anything that you feel called to or anything that you want to do that doesn't look like how everybody tells you a woman should look like, don't listen to it. And don't be guilty for it. Don't feel bad for wanting to have a career. Don't feel bad for wanting to do that. And for you stay-at-home moms who sometimes, you know, you, you, you feel a certain way, don't feel bad for wanting to be a stay-at-home mom. Don't feel bad for wanting to take care of your kids. It's not any less or anything like that. Do what God has called you to do and love the people God has called you to love the same way that he loved you. And men, men, I'm here to tell you as a, as, as a man, all I'm called to do is to love others the way that Christ has loved me. And all I'm called to do is submit to be the, the only way I'm the head of my family is I am the head servant. I am the head submitter. I'm the one to lay down my life for everybody else first. I don't need to man up. I don't need to hide my emotions. I don't need to stuff anything inside. I don't need to act like I have it all together because I'm telling you, and my wife will say amen to this, I don't. I don't. So I want to pray for you this morning. Lord, Father, I thank you so much. I thank you so much for Paul's words. God, I, I thank you that, uh, that you sent your son Jesus to die for us, that you gave us all an act of love that none of us deserved. 
Your son laid down his life for us, and you looked at us, and there was a debt there that we could never repay. We could never earn your love. We could never do enough to pay back what you gave us. And so you looked at us and said, all I want you to do is to, to love others in the same way. Can you just pass it, pass it on? Can you pass it forward? Can you give what I've given you to you to other people? God, I, I try so hard to live that to my best ability. I try so hard to, to love others. God, all of us, we're trying to do our best. We're trying to navigate through life. But God, for somebody in this room, it's so freeing to just hear that there is no cookie cutter for me. I'm not doing anything wrong. I don't need to feel guilty for wanting to do these things that I feel called to do in my life. I'm, there's, no, there's no thing of I'm not being a good mom. No, that's not, that, those are lies from Satan. God, you're calling every single one of us in a different, unique way. All of us have a different faith journey. You're calling every single one of us to, to impact this world in a different way. You're calling every single one of us to, to do different things. For some of us, it's, it's to care for our family and our kids so closely. For others of us, it's, it's to have a, a job and, and to, to be in a workforce. For some of us, it's, it's being entrepreneurs and starting businesses. God, there, there, is, there is no cookie cutter to this. So God, will you just relieve us of any guilt we might have felt, men and women, for, for not feeling womanly enough, for not feeling manly enough. God, remove that lie from our heads. And God, fill us. Fill us with your true identity. Fill us with the identity of your son, Jesus Christ. The only bar that I need to reach is to loving others in the way that you have first loved us through your son, Jesus Christ. Help me to live that out above everything else. In your name we pray.